0: No matter who we are, we're still human. And when someone has broken our trust, then it's, it's difficult for us to put full trust in that person, maybe for a long period of time. Um, true or false, Christians are less likely to deceive you than non-Christians. Well, that's a tricky one. You would hope so. Yeah, and and one reason that I think it's easier for us to be deceived by Christians is because we we trust them because they're supposed to be Christians. And that can be a very difficult thing. And it also has is, is caused a lot of people hurt as far as um, churches go because maybe they trusted a pastor uh, or a leader in the church, and when that person deceived them, I mean, there's been pastors that have you know, run off with all the money in the bank and, you know, done all types of things. And, and you know, the treasurer of the church, you know, decided they were going to take all the money and, and go to Bahamas or something. And it's hard. It happens all the time. Exactly right. Trust should always be earned and not readily given. That's another one of those human nature would say, absolutely, you have to earn my trust. But, you know, we, we, I think in, inherently we want to trust people. Um, but there is, there's nothing in the Bible that speaks of trusting people or groups. The only trust that the Bible talks about is trusting God. And I think we have to use wisdom in our, Trust, especially when it comes to the Word of God. There's been a lot of people deceived through what was supposedly a man of God to do a lot of things back years ago. One of the big things was the rapture is going to take place, or so you know. You just need to go out and sell all your stuff and give me all your money, and people did it. There was back 20 years so ago in this area, a man said that you know Florida was going to fall off into the ocean. So sell all your stuff, and we're going to all move to Texas. A lot of people did that too. And Florida's still here. So, you know, there's a lot of mistrust that has been placed in church leadership. And I think we have to, and I've said this before, when we put our trust in someone, in in anybody that stands in this pulpit or stands in front of this church and teaches, anything they say if it doesn't match up to the Word of God, it doesn't matter who they are. The Bible says that if an angel comes to you teaching anything other than what this Word says, let him be accursed. And that's where the trust thing, we can't blindly trust someone just because of who they say they are. And that's where people get themselves into so much trouble in in following after people that are supposedly men of God. And we're going to talk today about a story that's a fairly familiar story, I would think. But I want to kind of go into depth a little bit this morning. After Abraham died, the focus of the book of Genesis shifts from Abraham to the next person in that line, and that would be Isaac. Isaac marries a woman named Rebecca when he's 40 years old. 20 years later, the couple are still childless. But the Lord eventually gives them a child, actually gives them two. And Rebecca has twin boys, fraternal twins. And their names are Esau and Jacob. Now, Excuse me, please. As in a lot of families, there was probably some type of a sibling rivalry going on. Um, these boys were not alike. really. One of them chose a more domestic life. Uh, the Bible says that Jacob stayed among the tents, so that was more of a domestic lifestyle. And that Esau was a hunter, that he spent his time in the open country. Um, going to our scripture text, Genesis 25, 29 through 34. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he's also called Edom. <clears throat> Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, Swear to me first. And he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, and then he got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Now, what's the big deal about a birthright? In biblical times, it was customary that the firstborn son, whether it was the son of a a concubine or a child of a a legal wife, the firstborn son was to inherit the rights and the privileges of the family. They were next in line for whatever the father had. This typically included receiving any titles um, that the family might have. Receiving the family receiving the family name, it also included that the bloodline would go through that person of, from the father to that person. Because you remember, if you read the Old Testament, they had lots of kids back then. I mean, it wasn't unusual to have 8, 10, 12 kids. So the one that had the birthright, that's the lineage of the father, would be through that one that received the birthright. <clears throat> And usually because the child that received the birthright was the firstborn, he also received a double portion of the estate of the family. And now archaeologists have discovered that this logic and process was not always followed. Um, And the Bible gives us evidence of that also. A father could ignore the rights of the firstborn, and he could give the inheritance to a younger son. He could also disregard, if if the firstborn son was the son of one of his concubines, he could give it to one of his legal sons. So there was some processes that could be dismissed. It wasn't a set in, in stone law that it had to be that way. Now, in this situation, Esau, even though they were twins, Esau was born first. So technically, he was the firstborn. Jacob was second. So in this story, we see that they've grown up. Esau's out hunting. And I don't know how long he was out hunting. He must have been out there for a long time. And he had a bad day or a bad week or a bad month out hunting. And he comes back, and Jacob is cooking this little stew. Obviously, little stew was red. It says it was red stew. And Esau says, give me some of that stew. And Jacob was not the type of person that was going to miss an opportunity. He was a schemer. He, through his life, always looked out for what was best for Jacob. Now, let's look at Jacob's. He was the younger of the two, the he was the ancestor of the twelve tribes of Israel. He, there's two derivations of Jacob's name. One of them is translated from a Hebrew word heel because the Bible says that when he was born, he was born holding onto the heel of his brother. So that's one translation. Another has a figurative meaning of literally deceiver and Esau said to him at some point that we're going to see that he cheated him so you can see that he was a deceiver later on God changed his name to Israel and this is the name that Jacob's descendants took upon themselves to call themselves the Israelites <clears throat> now even though Jacob was a very deceitful person we see that later on in his life that he actually became a person of genuine faith, a person of integrity, even though he started off kind of in a a bad direction here. So that's a little bit of history on Jacob. So Jacob took advantage. Here's his brother comes in and says, I'm so hungry, I'm about to die. Now we say that maybe from time to time, but I think Esau, maybe he was just overly dramatic or whatever, you know, I'm so hungry, I'm almost famished, I'm dying. Give me some of that stew. And Jacob said, I'll tell you what, you give me your birthright, and I'll give you some stew. What? And we look at that and say, boy, that's about a dumb trade." You know, go over to the snack machine and get some cookies or something. But we look at him and we go, well, that's crazy. But this is Esau's logic. Esau's logic is, if I die... What good is my birthright anyway? Trading something that was long-term for something that was for here and now. Oh, absolutely. But that wasn't even enough. Jacob said, before I give you anything to eat, I want you to swear to me that you will give me your birthright. It wasn't enough just to say, okay, I'll do it. I want you to swear to me that you will give me your birthright. Esau said, whatever. If I die of hunger, then you're going to get it anyway. So, yeah, I swear I'll give you my birthright. Jacob gives him a bowl of pottage or stew. Now, in this situation here, both brothers showed some bad traits. Esau, of course, obviously, you see Jacob who is taking advantage of a situation. That's a very bad trait. You see somebody that needs something. You know you have something. So you say, I want the most important thing that you have in order to give you something that you want. That's a deceiver. That's somebody that takes advantage. So we know that's a bad character trait. But Esau's character trait is really just as bad because he took something that of that day and in that culture, was probably the most important thing that you could have. And that was the birthright of your family. And he was willing to take that and trade it for a simple bowl of soup. The feelings that he had right at that moment overcame his logic and what really mattered. People do that all the time. In our society, in, in Christianity, in, in, amongst believers, there are people that have walked with God for however long, and then for a moment, because of something, an opportunity that's presented, they're willing to trade all of that for something right here and right now. And we look at Esau and go, oh, he was a crazy man to do that but people still are doing that today. And we see all through the Bible in different stories where people traded what was important to them for something for the here and now. At some point, we have to set priorities. And this is what I think Esau lacked was a sense of priorities in his life. What is the most important thing in my life? Is it that I get something to eat right now? And honestly, do you really think he would have died? Yeah. I mean, he probably was not going to die. But it was that feeling of, but I want it right now. And I will sacrifice everything to have what I want right now. Talk a minute about Esau. He was the older twin by a couple minutes. And biblical scholars debate over what the real meaning of his name is. There's a couple things. Scripture says that his parents named him Esau because of his hairy body and reddish color. And there's kind of a twist of words in there. There was an area of land that was kind of a red clay area. And it had a name that was similar to what the Hebrew name of Esau was. And that was supposedly where they got the name Esau from, was because he was so red. Um, he was also known as Edom. And if you remember back in our studies in previous weeks, the Edomites were not friends of the Israelites. They fought them many times. And we'll, we'll get into that in just a minute. <clears throat> There's some contrast between Esau and Jacob. When they were born, number one, God said the older will serve the younger. That was the first thing. Esau wanted to be more of an outdoorsman. Jacob was more of a domestic type person. Isaac favored Esau. Rebekah favored Jacob, dad's favorite son, mom's favorite son. Esau married a Canaanite woman, not one of their people that observed religious things like they did, whereas Jacob married someone that was in the extended family of Abraham. So it was someone that was a believer of that day. In the final analysis we see in Hebrews, when it refers to Esau, it refers to him as a godless man. After all is said and done, later in the New Testament, in the 12th chapter of Hebrews, when it refers to him, the word that describes him is godless. Now, a couple interesting things. Chapter 27 verses one through four toward the end of Isaac's life he was going to pass on his blessing to one of his sons and this is kind of how it took place when Isaac was old his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see keep that in mind he was blind he called for Esau his older son and said to him my son here I am he answered Isaac said I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death Now then, get your weapons, your quiver and bow, go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. I'm old, I can't see anymore, you're my firstborn son, and I want to put a blessing on my firstborn son. Now he's already gotten rid of the birthright. The birthright and the blessing were two separate things. But he's already gotten rid of the birthright. And he goes, well, at least I got this going for me. Dad's called me in and said, I want to put the blessing on you. Go out and kill some meat. Fix me that stew that you make that I, you know I like and bring it to me and I will bless you. Sounds like a great plan. One problem. His mom's listening. Rebecca hears this, and keep in mind that Rebecca's favorite son was Jacob. Now, this, what we're fixing to talk about, is the start of a long downhill relationship. If you look through history, you can see that the two lines of Jacob and Esau, if you follow them all the way down through history, you'll see that today those descendants are still fighting. And they're fighting over an area called the West Bank. And you have the Palestinians and you have the Israelis and they still hate each other just as much. Amazing, isn't it? Talk about a Hatfields and McCoys feud. Here's one that's lasted for centuries. Going back to our lesson, verses 5 and 6. Now, Rebecca was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left for open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your brother, heard your father say to your brother Esau. And she goes through this explanation of what Jacob had said, or what Isaac had said to Esau, and told Jacob, Here's what we're going to do. Bring me some game. Listen, my son, and I'll tell you what to do. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. So here's the plan Esau's gone out into the woods to hunt wild game. Rebecca hears Esau tell what he wanted, so she calls in her favorite son Jacob and says, Go out and kill a couple lambs or sheep or whatever it was goats and bring them to me and I'll make that stew that Esau makes for your father and you can go in there and pretend that you're Esau and he'll put the blessing on you because he's blind going on Jacob said to Rebecca his mother but my brother Esau is a hairy man and I am a man with smooth skin what if my father touches me I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, my son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say and go get them for me. Going on. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother, and she prepared some tasty food just like the, just the way his father liked it. Then Rebekah took the best clothes of Esau, took Esau's clothes, remember they were twins, her older son, which she had in the house, and she put them on her younger son, Jacob. She also covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with goat skins. Now, I know the Bible says that Esau was a hairy man. But if you could pretend to be him by putting the skin of a goat, my goodness. We'll just leave that alone. Um, I wouldn't want to see him at the beach. Then she handed to her son Jacob the tasty food and the bread she had made. Now, what was the family blessing? We talked about the birthright. The family blessing was the father would make an oral commitment and a contract with whoever he placed that blessing on. He would call them in. They would have a a little informal ceremony, and he would place his hand on that son, and he would convey to him a blessing that would be for him and his descendants. So it was a very important thing of that day. At that time, the father would then divide the the power and property among the children. And once that family blessing was conveyed, it was irrevocable. It was a permanent thing. Once he placed his hand on that son and he put the blessing on him, he couldn't take it back. So that's why it was so important that while Esau is out hunting for them to sneak in and get the blessing. Back to verse 18. He went to his father and said, my father, yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. Wow. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked his son, I love this. How did you find it so quickly, my son? Seems like you just left. The Lord your God gave me success. Let me just tell you something. If you're going to scheme, don't make God... An accessory. And that's exactly what Jacob did here. He made God an accessory to the crime. This was all between his mother and he. And yet, to give it some validity, he has to throw in God. We talked a while ago about how there are people that are supposed men, men of God that have deceived people. You know what? They didn't do it completely. With just their words. Most of them use just enough of the Bible so that people will buy into it. That's right. That's right. The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. Then Isaac said to Jacob, "Come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether or not to know whether you really are my son Esau or not." See, they had this plan pretty good. They had thought of everything. You figure the two boys didn't sound alike, and Isaac was blind, not deaf. He walks in. Have you ever noticed that you talk to somebody that's blind? And you see people talking, somebody's blind and they always seem to talk louder. Why is that? I never understood that. Anyway, he says, come here and let me see if you're really my son. So he walks over. He's not worried about it. Then Isaac's, Jacob went to close, went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He felt that goat skin and said, yep, that's my goat skin boy Esau. He did not recognize him for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he blessed him. It seems weird that someone would go through all this scheming for something like a blessing. 24. Are you really my son, Esau? I am, he replied. Then he said, My son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him and he ate and he brought some wine and he drank. So he gives him the food. He checks him out, feels his hands. And he says, you know, you don't sound like Esau. But the food is what I asked for and it feels like Esau. So let me eat and then I'll give you the blessing." Because Rebecca probably didn't cook exactly like Esau. It's a good point. Good point. He went even further in verse twenty-seven. So he went to him and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said. Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field the Lord has blessed. They covered all the bases the fur on the hands, the brother's clothing, so that when he got close he could smell that it was his brother. 28. May God give you of heaven's dew and of earth's riches, richness. An abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the son of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. And we think, well, in the long run it all works out so everything's fine. Let's go to our scripture text that's in your quarterly, starting at verse 30. And this is where the problem starts. After Isaac finished blessing him and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. He too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. And then he said to him, my father, sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, who are you? I am your son, he answered, your firstborn, Esau. Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came and I blessed him, and indeed he will be blessed. Remember, it was irrevocable. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau said, Isn't he rightly named Jacob? He has deceived me these two times. He took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing. Then he asked, Haven't you reserved any blessing for me? Isaac answered Esau, I have made him Lord over you, and have made his relatives his servants. And I have sustained him with grain and new wine. So what can I possibly do for you, my son? When you look at this, and you look at the generations of people that follow, you can almost see where that hatred comes from. Because everybody is claiming something that they felt like was rightfully theirs. And I'm not going to get into politics today, but... If, if you really want to understand where this, this bitterness and hatred comes from, it's that one side feels like they were cheated out of what was rightfully theirs. And the other side contends, but I got it. And I'm not saying that that makes one right over the other, but since the blessing of God was on that one, then that's still the blessing of God. Isaac realizes what happened. Isaac starts trembling uncontrollably when he realizes what Jacob has done. Keep in mind, Esau was his favorite son. He had probably, as those boys grew up, just waited for the time that he could call Esau in and give him that family blessing. And now his younger son, who was his mother's favorite, has stolen that. And Esau was so upset. He said, it's not just once that he tricked me. Now it's a second time. He took my birthright. Now he's taken my blessing. And he pleaded with his father, don't you have something for me? Isn't there some blessing? Didn't you hold something back for me? Well, no, I thought it was you. Why would I hold it back if I thought it was you? probably one of the of these players in this scenario, the biggest loser at this point is Jacob because he's lost his father's trust. He has a brother that hates him. And even though he did what his mother said, probably his mother has a certain amount of distrust for him because she knows what he's capable of. And so even though he seemingly came out on top, what has he really gained? Through all the deception and all the lies and and the elaborate scheming, and seemingly like he wins, he has mostly won the disdain of his family. And I'm sure that extended family and friends that find out about it they all looked at him and said, that's that Jacob. We know what kind of person he is. Look out for him. When we step outside of what we know is right, and all of a sudden we find that people look at us a little differently, it's not them. They look at us differently because they know that we're not trustworthy and that goes back to that human nature thing, it's hard to win back that trust. If you have cheated somebody out of money, somebody mentioned that earlier, if you have cheated somebody out of money, it's going to be a long time probably before that person will let you be involved around their money again. Because you know what they're capable of. And even though Esau and Jacob are brothers, and I'm sure at some point there was a longing, and at some point they did make restitution, but I'm sure there was a longing to have some type of a a restitution and, and resolve this issue. But in the back of Esau's mind, there would always be that doubt, can I really trust him this time? Jacob really didn't. I think one of the reasons Jacob didn't, I think he saw that when he took the birthright from Esau, I think he saw the hurt and the pain that he caused. And I don't really think he wanted to do that again. But that wasn't enough to stop him from following through with something for here and now. Sir Walter Scott, and I never knew this was... Him that said this, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Paul Harvey tells a story about four boys that were late for high school. And when they came in, they told the teacher that they had a flat tire. And the teacher seemed very sympathetic. And she said, well, you boys know you missed a test, and it was an important test. But I'm going to give you a chance, since it was just a flat tire, and everybody else is gone. I'm going to give you a chance to make up the test. And what I want you to do, and she split them up into the four corners of the room, gave them each a piece of paper and a pencil. And she said, you only have to answer one question. She turned around on the blackboard, and she wrote, which tire was it? See, here's the thing about deception. Eventually, you get caught. And and the bad thing is, most people that set out to deceive, they know that that's a possibility, but they don't think it's strong enough to stop them from doing it. A lot of times in a relationship, whether it be business, personal, whatever it is, a person says, I will do this because it's really not hurting anybody. And that's never been the case. People always get hurt when we set out to deceive somebody. Multi-billion dollar businesses have been destroyed by deception and lying. Recently, Enron? first one that came to my mind that I wrote down. Here you have people that deceived and lied, and there were supposedly as they did it, I'm sure they thought what's the big deal? Yet you had people that had all their retirement tied up in this. I heard one man interviewed, he had over a million dollars in Enron stock when it was 90 some dollars a share, and it fell to about 18 cents a share? Everything he'd worked for was gone. Why? Because of somebody's deceit and lying. When we set out to deceive, it will reach out further than what we realize. When Jacob and his mother, Rebecca, schemed, they were looking at the small picture. I go to dad, I get the blessing. Esau's the only one that gets hurt. Who got hurt? All of Esau's descendants. That was the blessing for the entire family line. And that destruction and hatred still carries on today. All of these thousands of years later, there's been people, how many people have died over this simple act of deception? Exactly. And it went out from there to all these different people that you find out were involved. And, and that's the problem with deception, is it's never just between you and the person you deceived. In a church situation where there is a, a pastor maybe that, that does something or a church treasurer that does something, they go, well, you know, what's it hurting? I'm just taking a little bit of money. Because that money was given as unto the Lord. And there are people that the devil will use that, especially if it's a pastor that takes off with the money. People will get this attitude of, well, I'll never give another dime to a church because look what happened. Or they just up and leave the church because they considered that pastor as infallible. And as I said before, every one of us is capable Of making mistakes. When we put total trust in somebody and they're not following the Word of God, we can be deceived. That's why it's important that we read our Bible. That's why it's important that we study our Bible and we know what it says so that if someone tells us something and it doesn't match up, that something goes off in our head and we go... That doesn't sound right. Look at all the the precautions that Isaac took. First he said, who are you? He said, I'm your son Esau. You don't sound like my son Esau. He listened for his voice. He said, well, come over here and, and let me touch your hand. And he came over and he felt his hand. And he said, you still don't seem like my son Esau the voice is right the voice is wrong but you feel like my son Esau are you sure you're Esau and then when he came again he said lean over here and then when he smelled his clothes he said oh you must be Esau and see our version of that today is to if we want to make sure that it's truth is to match it up against the bible this is our version of come over here and let me feel your hand. I know you said that, but let me see if that's really what the word of God says. And I know you said it again. Let me, let me just look again and see if it's right. And until everything pointed to that direction, I'm just not buying into it. You go, well, you want us to, to question? Yeah. I do. If I say something here and it doesn't sound like it matches the Word of God, I want you to question it. Don't take what I say because you think I know what I'm talking about. Because if I'm wrong, then that makes us both wrong. Now, you don't have to question me in front of everybody. You can wait till after we're done and question me. But if I'm wrong, then I need to come back in front of everybody that I said it to and say, you know what, folks, I was wrong. That is the only way that we can live a Christian life and live it by the Word of God. There are people today that are building churches, building businesses off of that deceit and if we're not careful we can fall into that let's get back to churches have been destroyed just like Enron where something happened and it it fell apart lives are always impacted families have been torn apart through deceit and not only does it affect the people that are involved it affects immediate family, extended family friends, and it goes on. So what do we do? I would say if there's anything in your life today that you know shouldn't be there, if there is deceit in your life, then before you leave this place today, get rid of it. That's the first thing. Why do people fear giving up the whole deceit thing. I think it's because they're afraid that once they're so far into it that everything will come crashing down so I have to keep this going. At any one time when Isaac questioned Jacob, he could have said, Dad, I can't do this. But he was already so far into it that he went to the next step. And then once he got a little bit deeper, he couldn't turn back. He had to go all the way for it. And all the way up until Isaac placed his hand on him and gave him that blessing, he had the opportunity to say, Dad, I can't do this. This is not right. And any time when we are headed into that direction in a scenario like that, we have the opportunity to turn around and get out. But you know what? A lot of times we go, but if I do, then everyone's going to find out. So I'll just tell one more lie to cover this lie and one more lie to cover that lie. That's where that saying, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Because one lie leads to another. Exactly. So what's the first step? I believe the first step is to ask God for forgiveness. God is a forgiving God. If we have done something, we need to repent. We need to ask Him to forgive us. And when we do, He's promised that He will do that. I think we need to make things right with the person. Maybe you don't sit down and go into great detail, but I think somehow you need to go to that person and say, I've done something wrong, and I need your forgiveness. That's a hard thing to do. I was talking to someone recently that's involved in a 12-step program for recovering um, drug abusers. And they told me that one of the things in in the 12-step programs is at some point, you have to find people that you have wronged, and you have to make that right. Really? Yeah. How are you doing on that? Uh, Okay. Have you got to everybody? Well, no, not really. But I believe we have to try to make restitution if it's possible. If we have stolen from somebody and we have schemed and connived that we took possessions from someone, then I believe we need to do our best to make restitution to restore that person. That's right. It does become a way of life. That's the sad part, is that becomes who you are. He lived up to his name, deceiver. And then after we make restitution, I believe we have to work at building that trust back. That's a hard thing. Don't expect just because you ask for forgiveness that total trust comes with the forgiveness. I think it was very appropriate that we talked about forgiveness a couple of weeks ago when we talk about something like this today. Because maybe you're not the person that's been been wronged. Or maybe you're not the person that has wronged someone. Maybe you're the person that has been wronged. What do you choose to be your reaction when the person comes to you and asks for forgiveness? Well, I'll forgive you, but I won't ever forget it. That's not forgiveness. I believe that we can forgive somebody, but we can be cautious and how much trust we get back? You say, "Well, that doesn't sound very Christian." We're still human, and it goes back to that that whole thing of if you fool me once, shame on you; you fool me twice, shame on me. And I know that's a tough thing to to say that that's a Christian attitude, but. This is where it gets back to earning that trust. And I believe that a person can't earn trust back. But I don't believe that if someone has done something, for example, somebody has come into a church, in a position in a church, and has taken tremendous amounts of money from the treasury. Yes, do you forgive that person? Absolutely. Do you vote them back in next year as a treasurer? I would say probably not. And that's where I'm talking about letting that person win back the trust. You still love them. You still would do anything to help restore them back to Christ. But you don't put them back in that position that they can do it again. One of the best examples, I think, is if you look in the New Testament with Jesus... Jesus had one of the disciples that was a very special person to him, and that was Peter. I believe that that was like his his protege, his buddy. And he told Peter, he said, you know, you, you're going to be the rock. And upon this rock, I'm going to build my church on this whole thing. You're going to be a, a an igniter in this fire that's fixing to turn loose. But yet this very person that Jesus thought so much of, when Jesus was being put on trial, he denied Jesus not once, twice, but three times. He said, I don't even know him. This is his best friend. And he cursed and said, you're wrong. I don't even know that guy. But you know what? Jesus didn't have him struck dead right then and there. I believe that he knew that there was something down inside of Peter that was good. And he knew that Peter would do what we've talked about this morning, that he would repent of that. And we see that God used Peter as a vessel to start something that's still ongoing today. When a person is done wrong, we don't write them off and say, you did something wrong and therefore you can never amount to anything. If that was the case, we'd all be in trouble. But it's much easier to look at the fact that we think we deserve forgiveness. It's easier to look at that than it is to Forgive sometimes. If I can't forgive, how can I be it's exactly what the Bible says. Whereas deceit can destroy all the parties involved, repentance, forgiveness, and time can restore the relationship. Amen. The Bible story after story, if you this this scenario, if, if you could make a, a template of this scenario and to turn to different stories in the Bible, it would overlay right on top of those stories, and you would see it time and time again played out. And the amazing thing is that God Used some of those people in tremendous ways. Even though they had done some horrible wrongs, David turned to the story of David and take this same template of of how the story played out and put it over the story of David. And you see, he had some horrible deception that he practiced. People died. And you know what? God still used him as a mighty king. He was limited as to what he could do, but he still used him. And I would tell you this morning, if you were here this morning and the devil is trying to convince you because of something you've done in your past, something that's been in your life, and the devil is beating you on the back of the head saying, you will never amount to anything because that thing that you did, the devil is a liar. He is a deceiver of the brethren. Don't believe it. If you have asked for forgiveness and God has forgiven you, then who is anyone else to hold that against you? Maybe you can't regain all of that trust that you once had, but that doesn't mean that God can't use you in his kingdom. I know. Don't let the devil beat you up over something that's under the blood. Jacob was not a very worthy person. But when God changed his name to Israel, and he became the father of this nation that was his blessed people, that he provided for, even when they did wrong, and he brought them back out and they fell back in, and he brought them back out, and they fell back into unbelief. These were his descendants. Don't ever think that because of something in your past, that you are worthless to God, because all of us have something in our past. That in humans' eyes would make us not worthy. But you know what? Salvation is not built on the worthiness that we attain from humans. And once it's under the blood, it's gone. Leave it under the blood. Let it go. And this wasn't the direction that I intended this lesson to go this morning. But I want to get this across so much this morning that God wants to use you in his kingdom. And the devil wants so much for you not to be used. And he will use everything within his power. Lies and deceit and all of these things that we saw this morning, those are the tricks of the devil. And He will use those against you this morning to defeat you so that you say, I can never become something for God. Don't buy into it. Look at the examples. These examples in the Bible are there for a reason. They're not just bedtime stories. They're, just not, they're not just a fairy tale. These are here for a reason so that we know this is the character of God. This is what God sees in people. This is how God works. Even though this person was a bad person, by everyone that looks in on the story, God still used him. And he can use you. If you'll be willing. God bless you. bless you. Praise the Lord. Shall we stand together? I encourage you to take the words you have heard this morning to heart. Very powerful Bible class this morning and one that really has an abundance of meaning to it. Hallelujah. So we have a great work to do And the adversary will use any means possible to try to deter us from it. Hallelujah. Jacob, after his relationship and an encounter with God, which changed to Israel. A prince with God. Hallelujah. Let's take a few moments. Run to the water fountain.